This message is brought to you by Mill City Church in Lowell, Massachusetts. For more information, please visit millcitychurch.net. You ready to study God's Word together this morning? Turn to John chapter 20. Turn to John chapter 20. This morning we begin a new teaching series from the Gospel of John that will take us through most of the spring. Now any student at any educational level knows that when writing a paper, writing a paper for a grade for a class, it is required to state your thesis and then set out to develop and defend that thesis throughout your paper. If you do that well, then you'll probably get a good grade. If you don't do that well, well, you can always take the course over next semester. In John's gospel, he clearly states his thesis at the end of the book. You get to the end of the book of John, in John chapter 20, and verse 30, John writes this, Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. John puts his cards on the table, and he tells you why he endeavored to write his gospel. And as we begin this study, I want you to apply John's thesis to your own heart. I see at least three purposes in John's writing this gospel. Three purposes for you and for me. The first purpose is to show you who Jesus is. To show you who Jesus is. John says that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. Now, Christ isn't Jesus' last name. It's not Jesus Christ. Christ is not his surname. Christ is his title. The word Christ means the Messiah. And so what this means is that Jesus is the one that all of the Old Testament prophets said would one day come. He is the chosen one of God. It's probably best to call him Jesus the Christ or Jesus the Messiah. Just as we might say President Trump, we could even say Messiah Jesus. John's gospel will show you who Jesus is. John also wants to show you what Jesus has done. He wants to show you what Jesus has done. John says that Jesus did many signs. He couldn't include all of them. But he wrote about these ones in these 21 chapters. So in the coming weeks you will learn what Jesus taught. You're going to learn how Jesus healed. You're going to learn about the miracles Jesus performed. You're going to learn about the the death that Jesus died and, of course, the miraculous resurrection he experienced on that first Easter morning. John wants you to know who Jesus is. He wants to show you what Jesus has done, ultimately to show you why Jesus is worthy of your trust. He wants to show you why Jesus is worthy of your trust. John's purpose is not to simply teach a lot of grand truths about Jesus just so that we have more knowledge. This study is not simply an academic exercise. 
He says that he wants to show you who Jesus is and what Jesus has done so that you might believe that Jesus is the Son of God, thereby receiving life in his name. Now, that word believe is very important to John. Because some 100 times in this gospel, he is going to use some form of the word believe. That averages out to be about five times a chapter he's going to use a form of the word believe. So simply at a cursory glance, knowing that fact, John would probably get an A on his paper because he did what he set out to do in his thesis. Throughout these 21 chapters, John instructs us in right theology of who Jesus is. He recounts significant truths Jesus taught and supernatural works Jesus did. And he does all of this so that you might believe. So that you might place all of your trust in all that he is. So that ultimately you may experience life to the fullest in this life and also life eternal in the next life. And so we begin this 15-week journey experiencing some highlights from the Gospel of John. And so turn back now to John chapter 1 because the beginning is always a good place to start. And so this morning we begin by acknowledging the truth that Jesus did, in fact, come to planet Earth. And so as we start this sermon series entitled Believe, this morning, my friend, I want you to believe that Jesus came to Earth, that Jesus came. And in John chapter 1, we're going to read verses 1 through 18 this morning. We're going to read John's prologue. And, Jesus, and John is going to persuade us to believe the identity of Jesus. He says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. In Him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness about him and cried out, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me ranks before me because he was before me. For from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, the only God, who is at the Father's side. He has made him known. 
And because of the brevity of our time this morning, we're not going to be able to unpack every single truth or every single line that's in this introductory uh, prologue. But we are going to see a majority of it. And as we make our way through this opening uh, prologue of the book of John, I want you to take, I want to take you on a sensory examination of this prologue. I want to engage your different senses because John really does that for us uh, in his introduction here. And so let's see a sensory examination of the supremacy of Jesus this morning. And the first sense I want to engage, I want to engage your mind. And so to that end, I want you to know the supernatural identity of Jesus. I want you to know the supernatural identity of Jesus. John begins his gospel with a very familiar line. He begins with the line, in the beginning. Those are the same three words that actually begin the entire Bible in the book of Genesis. And he says, in the beginning was the word. He uses a title for Jesus that seems odd to us, but it's a title that would have been very familiar to his first century listeners. The word or the logos. First century Greek culture would have still been heavily influenced by the Greek philosophical giants Aristotle and Plato and their Stoic counterparts. At the heart of their worldview was the logos. They believed that the rational mind or ultimate reason ruled the universe. Their thought process could sound like this. They looked out, and and they would use three words that, that we would translate in our English language. Chaos, logos, and cosmos. Chaos, logos, reason, cosmos, order. And here's how they would reason. They would deduce... That they would look out at the chaos in their world and they would then deduce that achieving the highest level of human reason or logos could bring order or cosmos to their society. So chaos, logos, and cosmos. And so as an apologetic to his unbelieving listeners, John uses cultural language to appeal to their minds. He wants them to know that Jesus has universal authority over all the universe, not just the Jewish sect of the universe. And that Jesus is the ultimate explanation of life and will bring ultimate order to the chaos they see and experience in life. Now I want you to fast forward 2,000 years later to today. The same reality is true for you and for me and our world. You and I are going to hear any number of theories or explanations, spiritual beliefs on any given day. But Jesus speaks truth into our culture, and he brings order to our chaos today. So as John introduces the supernatural identity of Jesus to the first century world, allow the text this morning to introduce the supernatural identity of Jesus to your world today. And so to this end, Let's see at least three aspects of Jesus' identity we learn in these opening verses. Number one, know his origin. Know his origin. So where did Jesus come from? Well, John says, ultimately, he came from God. Well, he actually says that Jesus is God, doesn't he? 
These first three verses have proven to be some of the most cherished words in all of Scripture regarding Jesus. And you and I should cherish them today, too. So three truths here about Jesus' origin that John gives us. One, he says that Jesus is eternal, right? Twice, John says, in the beginning. So in other words, if you and I were able to invent a time machine today, wouldn't that be fun? So if we could invent a time machine today and travel back all the way to in the beginning, Jesus would already be there waiting on us. Because the reality is Jesus existed before the beginning ever happened. We cannot be tempted to believe that Jesus found his beginning in the Bethlehem manger. No, Jesus, the Son, has existed for all of eternity. Jesus is eternal, John teaches us. He also teaches us that Jesus is God. Very plainly, very clearly, the text tells us that Jesus is God. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was God. And thirdly, God the Son is distinct from God the Father. So Jesus is eternal, Jesus is God, but God the Son is distinct from God the Father. John says the Word was with God. Now this is one of the paragraphs in the Bible where Christians derive the doctrine of the Trinity. That yes, one God, 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 the one God exists in three different persons. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. Even Jesus himself in John 17, 5, which we will see in several weeks, attested to his own eternal preexistence. He said, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory I had with you before the world existed. Now, we don't have time this morning to exhaust this topic, but we see these three important truths about the origin of Jesus. Jesus is eternal. Jesus is God, and God the Son is distinct from God the Father. So Noah's origin. Secondly, Noah's power. Verse 3 says, All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. So we quickly learn here that Jesus is not simply another great philosopher sitting at the religious round table. John makes clear that Jesus was the active, causal agent of the creation itself. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. The language John uses here points us to Jesus' creative activity in every single part of creation. Does anybody here love to make a target run every now and then? All right, I'm one of those guys. I, I love just floating around target. There are some days when you just have to walk right in and right out, but then there are the days where you can just kind of linger, and I like to linger sometime. Well, rather than opening the doors, opening the sliding doors of target, and then just pointing and saying, everything in here God created. What John is doing instead is he wants to take you through the double doors and he wants, you to take, he wants to take you on a tour of the store. He wants you to take you to the clothing section and pick out that blouse and look at it and say, Jesus made this. 
Then he wants to take you to the electronics section and say, you see that 65-inch OLED TV? Yeah, he made that too with his ingenuity of his mind. And then he wants to take you over to the health and beauty aid section and pick out just the, just the simplest, plainest Oral-B toothbrush and say, you see this? It's kind of boring, right? Yeah, he even made this. When you open up the sliding doors of the created world, Jesus' hand was active in every minute part of creation, from the smallest of sesame seeds to the towering redwoods, from the smallest annoying gnat to the largest majestic whales, from the little bump of an anthill to the majesty of the peak and summit of Mount Everest. There exists nothing in creation that Jesus does not look at and say, mine, I created it all. That's why this morning we join with the worshipers in Revelation chapter 4, verse 11, and say, worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power, for you created all things, and by your will they existed and were created. So know his origin, know his power. Thirdly, know his purpose. As we're going to know his supernatural identity from this opening prologue. I want you to know his purpose. It's what John goes on to say in verse 4. He says, in him was life and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it. You go on down to verse 9. He says, the true light which gives light to everyone was coming into the world. Now throughout scripture, God paints a contrast between himself and the world he created. He constantly uses terms like light versus darkness or life versus death. John says that Jesus' purpose in coming to earth was to bring spiritual life to our spiritual death or to bring spiritual truth to our spiritually darkened minds. And as we make our way through this gospel this spring, we're going to see more specifically how he did that. But for the sake of our message this morning, I want you to see the first century examination in this, test, in this text. I want you to see this morning, I want you to know the supernatural identity of Jesus. And secondly, I want you to know this. I want you to also engage your eyes. I want you to see, I want you to see the miraculous incarnation of Jesus. Know the supernatural identity of Jesus. See the miraculous incarnation of Jesus. Now, at the expense of making this morning's sermon a theological masterclass, we need to know what the word incarnation means. If you are a follower of Jesus, it is incumbent upon you to know what the term incarnation means. Theologically, When we speak of Jesus' incarnation, we are referring to the truth that Jesus Christ, the Son, who has always existed in perfect relationship with the Father for all of eternity past, that Jesus Christ, the Son of God, became a human being. The Son, who had always existed in the heavenly realm, entered into the world He created. 
The creator literally became one of his creations. This in no way implies that Jesus himself was, was created. Not at all. The son has always existed. But the son left the treasures of heaven to enter into our world to experience the fullness of humanity. And so in that sense, God literally came down to become one of us, to dwell among us. Now, in an imperfect way, a modern example of incarnation is the show Undercover Boss. Has anyone seen it? This is the show where CEOs of major companies all across America go undercover and become an average employee in one of their stores. So they set aside the $2,000 suits and they don the apron or they put on the blue collar. And they do this in order to see what the working conditions of their employees are really like. And then at the end of the show, there is always the hardworking single mother waitress or the faithful uneducated shift manager who receives a healthy bonus or an unexpected promotion. And because the CEO came down to their level, these unexpected employees ultimately, for a moment, come up to his. In an imperfect way, this is a glimpse of the incarnation of Jesus. He came down to our level. John says in verse 14 that Jesus became flesh and dwelt among us. And what John does here is he's using Old Testament imagery that any faithful Jew would have immediately understood and recognized. That word dwelt among us literally means that Jesus tabernacled among us. He pitched his tent and dwelt among us is what John says. Now, in the Old Testament, the people of God literally went to the tabernacle to experience God's presence. Here, John says that Jesus brought the tabernacle to us. Jesus brought the presence of God to us. And in doing so, Jesus ultimately fulfilled the promise of God. Because you see, for centuries, God promised that Messiah was coming. He did this through his prophets. And in Jesus, the Messiah came. Jesus also revealed to us the person of God. No one had ever seen God in the face and lived to tell about it. But look at verse 18. He says, no one has ever seen God, the only God, who is at the Father's side. He, Jesus, has made him known. So when we look at the face of Jesus, when we listen to the words of Jesus, when we see the actions and the works of Jesus, we are literally seeing God in action. We are seeing God in the flesh. And in his coming, Jesus also sealed God's provision to us. Jesus ultimately, Jesus is ultimately the completion of God's gospel. The gospel that began in the Old Testament through sacrificial systems, through the giving of the law, but is now completed in the grace and truth of Jesus. We see this 
in verses 16 and 17. For from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. This is not saying that Moses wasn't important. It's not saying that the law doesn't matter. It simply says that the law was the beginning of the gospel. Jesus Christ has come to fulfill and to complete the gospel by bringing the grace and truth of God to us in human form. So, friend, here's the truth this morning. Jesus came to earth to bring you to heaven. Jesus became like one of us so that we, I, you, might become like him. So know the supernatural identity of Jesus and see the miraculous incarnation of Jesus. Thirdly, listen, use your ears this morning, listen to the reliable testimony of his witnesses. In verse 6, we're introduced to a new character in this gospel already. John, verse 6, there was a man sent from God whose name was John. Now, this is not the the Apostle John, the, the Apostle John who authored this gospel. As a matter of fact, the Apostle John does not call himself by his name anywhere in this gospel. He's simply referred to as the the, the apostle whom Jesus loved. We can get to that in a later conversation. But this is talking about John the Baptist. And it says that John the Baptist was sent from God as a witness, in verse 7, to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. So John the Baptist knew who he was, and he knew who Jesus was. In verse 15, it says again that John bore witness. And then you go down to verse 29. It says, John saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. See, John's whole purpose was to deflect attention from his own preaching, deflect attention away from himself, and point people through his preaching to Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God who would take away the sin of the world. And he goes on to say this, This is he of whom I said, After me comes a man who ranks before me because he was before me. I myself did not know him, but for this purpose I came baptizing with water that he might be revealed to Israel. And John bore witness. I saw the Spirit descend from heaven like a dove, and it remained on him. I myself did not know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, He on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And I have seen, and I have borne witness, that this is the Son of God. Just like the numerous Old Testament prophets before him, this John... This John the Baptist was sent by God to ready the hearts of the people for Jesus' arrival. And according to the text here, John knew his place. He knew that he wasn't great, but he knew the one who was. And John the Baptist, just like so many of the other disciples, witnessed with his own very eyes the miraculous things Jesus said and did. He was there that day when Jesus was baptized and God opened up the heavens and spoke audibly and said, this is my son with whom I am well pleased. John saw with his own eyes. He heard with his own ears. He saw with his own eyes the spirit of God descend upon Jesus and and light upon his shoulders as a dove. He was witness to these things. 
the Apostle John who authored this gospel. He was there when Jesus taught the crowds. He was there when he healed the lame. He was there when Jesus caused the blinded eyes to see. John watched Jesus be arrested. He witnessed Jesus die. And he personally conversed with him after he resurrected from the grave. These guys were witnesses. They saw it. They heard it. And friend, there's a long line of spiritual witnesses from the past 2,000 years. Men, women, boys and girls whose lives have been transformed through repentance and faith in this Nazarene, Jesus Christ of Nazareth. Many of us sit in this room this morning. We like John the Baptist, are also witnesses. Witnesses to the supernatural majesty of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, because He has supernaturally transformed our lives. It's like John sits on the witness stand today and testimony about the uniqueness and the supremacy of Jesus Christ is being given. You, you, You today sit like a jury needing to make a decision with the testimony you're being given. And you must respond to that information. And that leads us to the fourth sensory examination about the supremacy of Jesus that I want you to see this morning. Yes, know the supernatural identity of Jesus in your mind. And see the miraculous incarnation of Jesus with your eyes. Listen to the reliable testimony of the witnesses of Jesus with your ears. And lastly, I want you with all of your being to weigh the eternal impact of your response. Weigh the eternal impact of your response. Look with me at verse 10. He, Jesus, was in the world... And the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God." When you look at verses 10 through 13, you see two responses to the supernatural identity of Jesus. One positive, the other negative. And what these, reverse, what these verses reveal to you this morning is that there are only two options for your own personal response to Jesus. Either believe and receive him or disbelieve and reject him. There's no middle ground. There's no almost or close enough. Either believe and receive him or disbelieve and reject him. And so this morning, I want to be sobering for a moment. This is not a casual exercise for me this morning, and it should not be a casual exercise for you I want you to pause this morning. I want you to pause right where you are. And I want you to consider your response to the supremacy of Jesus. The supremacy of Jesus we've seen in this text of Scripture. 
and pondering his supernatural identity and his miraculous incarnation, pondering the uniqueness of who he is, the majesty of his identity, thinking about the witnesses who saw and heard the supernatural things that he said and did. I want you to weigh your response. I want you to grapple with these truths in your heart and in your mind because there is a gravity here. There should be a gravity and a weight resting on your shoulders this morning. This is not simply adding a spiritual component to your life. This is not simply bettering yourself or having a church experience Sunday after Sunday. I want you to know this morning that your eternity, the eternal destiny of your soul, literally is affected by your response to this Jesus this morning. And so with that being said, weigh these two responses that we see in the text. We'll start with the negative and end with the positive. First, the text tells us this. Reject him and be condemned. Reject him and be condemned. In verse 10, it says that he was in the world and the world was made through him, yet the world didn't know him. He came to his own and his own people did not receive him. God had prophesied for centuries that Messiah would come. He told the Jewish people, he told his precious, beloved nation Israel that Messiah is coming. In the Greek, Christos is coming. And then Christos came. Christos came through the perfect line of David. And he taught among his people and he ministered among his people. He healed his people's infirmities He's literally dwelt among his people, laughed with his people, cried with his people, grieved with his people. And the overwhelming majority of his people rejected him and did not receive him as God's promised Messiah. And this morning, you and I sit here as God's creations and we're listening to the same message that these first century listeners heard 2,000 years ago, and an overwhelming majority of people in our culture, in our land, still reject him. And I believe this morning in a room this size that there are some of you in this room who are continually rejecting this Jesus. And to reject Jesus is to disbelieve Jesus, and to disbelieve Jesus is to reject him. And Jesus himself tells us This is not just John's words. Jesus himself tells us that if we reject him, then we will be condemned. John chapter 3 verse 18, after Jesus tells us the famous, for God so loved the world verse, Jesus says this, whoever believes in him, Jesus, is not condemned. But whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed In the name of the only Son of God. So I want you to weigh your response this morning. I want you to know that you have every human right this morning to reject Jesus. You have every human right to disbelieve Jesus. But I want you to know 
that that rejection and that unbelief does not come without consequences. And the consequences are far more dire than any consequence that you and I could ever experience from an earthly court or an earthly judge. So I want you to weigh your unbelief. I want you to weigh your rejection this morning. But I also want you to see the converse. You reject him and you will be condemned, but you receive him and you will be adopted. You receive him and you will be adopted. That's the good news of the gospel this morning. And that's, that's what's so significant about this little big word, but in verse 13, in verse 12. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Don't just drive by this. You and I live in an age where we use terminology like this all the time in our culture. Well, we're just all God's children, right? You've heard that before? Perhaps you've employed those words before. Well, we're all God's children. Well, that's true in a created sense, but it's not true in the literal sense. It's true in the created sense because we are all God's offspring, meaning that we are all created from the hand of God. There is no one here who has been created by accident. There is no one who is living on planet Earth by some other means other than through God's causal agent, Jesus Christ, creating you. So in that sense, yes, we are all God's children. But the text tells us that we have to be given the right to be called the child of God in the familial sense. Something else has to happen in order for you to be called God's child, for you to be called God's son, or to be called God's daughter. And he says that it's not out of human effort or the, the will of man, but it's of God. We literally have to be born again. And we're going to see this in a few weeks when we see the example of Nicodemus in John chapter 3. But don't miss the promise here. When we receive him by faith, you are adopted into the family of God. And at that moment, you are literally called a son or a daughter of God. So reject him and be condemned, but receive him and be adopted. Now, you might be here today and you might be thinking, well, Chris, what does that mean? What does it mean to believe? The whole series is called Believe. What does that word believe mean? Does it simply mean that I believe some truths about God? Well, it at least starts there, but it doesn't end there. The belief that John uses here, this term believe, this term receive, it literally means that we are putting our everything, our whole volitional life, we are resting our hopes, our dreams, our aspirations, our spiritual identity, our eternal hopes in this man, Jesus Christ, in who he is and what he has done. I think about a bridge. I want you to think about the picture of a bridge. A bridge that is made of rope and maybe some tattered pieces of wood. And it is spread out over a chasm, a gulf, a stream, a mountain. And you come upon that bridge and you look at it and you say, what a lovely bridge. 
Someone had great ingenuity in designing this and making this. What a masterful piece of architecture made out of very antiquated means. Well, why don't you walk across the bridge? I would rather just sit here and marvel at the bridge. The bridge is wonderful. I truly believe that that bridge has structural integrity. I believe, as a matter of fact, that the entire Israelite people could march across this bridge and go across it safely just as God brought them across the Red Sea. Well, why don't you walk across that bridge? Well, I believe so deeply in the integrity of that bridge. See, you're not... You're saying that you believe the integrity of the bridge, but you're not demonstrating belief until when? Until you actually step out across that bridge and you hold on to the sides. And even when your friend wobbles it around and, and you're there in the middle and you go all the way across to the other side, that's when you actually put belief. That's when you actually put faith. That's actually when you put trust in the integrity and the architectural genius of the bridge made out of antiquated means. It's not enough to simply marvel at Jesus' great life. It's not enough to simply marvel at his supernatural identity or to be amazed in seeing his miraculous incarnation or even saying his witnesses are some really great people who give some really good apologetic intellectual reasons for why they believe. It's not enough to even simply say that I think that Jesus is probably the best religious teacher of all the religious teachers who have ever lived. At some point, you have to take the intellectual reasoning in your mind, the intellectual facts that you are believing, and then put active volitional trust and feet to them. you got to step on the bridge. And yeah, it's going to be scary giving all of your trust and all of your life and attaching all of your identity to this man named Jesus. And yeah, there are going to be times when your faith is going to be wobbly because the situations and circumstances of this world are going to shake you at your core. But you keep walking across because you know, you know the structural integrity of that on whom you are now standing. So this morning, what I want to do is I want to appeal to your mind, yes, but I want to also appeal to your heart to say step out in faith this morning and believe. Believe with your mind, but also believe with your heart. Receive him with your mind, yes, but also receive him by your trust. And you can do that by prayer this morning, by simply acknowledging to God that you're a sinner, but that you're also precious because you were created by him. And that you've been born once physically here on earth, but you need to be born again spiritually. And that you want to be adopted as a son of God, as a daughter of God. And by placing faith and belief in receiving his son today, you can be adopted into the family of God and you will no longer be condemned. Father, I pray for these people today. I pray that you would awaken them to the beauty and the matchless worth of your son, Jesus. I pray that where their faith is weak, that you would strengthen it. And I pray that where they are weak in their own minds and their own heart, that you would give them the inertia to take that first step on that bridge of faith today. And then, Father, I pray that you would give them the boldness and the courage to tell a trusted 
friend or a trusted pastor or leader today of what you're doing in their lives and heart. I ultimately pray today that through belief that you came and that you lived and that you died and that you resurrected from the grave, I pray pray that through that belief today that you would save some in this room and that you would renew the faith and cause us to be renewed by our amazement of Jesus among those of us who believe. And we pray this in the mighty name of Jesus. Amen.